Hello, and welcome back to another edition of the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Today, my guest is my good friend and frequent collaborator, Ted Jessup. Today, we're going to talk about Deliverance, an amazing movie from 1972. Hollywood in 1972 was sort of in an awkward middle school stage. On the one hand, you had emerging new Hollywood auteurs making films like The Godfather, Brian De Palma's Sisters, Michael Ritchie's The Candidate, starring Robert Redford, Fosse's Cabaret, Bob Rafelson's The King of Marvin Gardens. But on the other hand, a lot of studios were still run by old school film business operators who were churning out more standard, usually Western fare, like Jeremiah Johnson or Judge Roy Bean, two films that still starred actors like Redford and Newman who would surf the wave of changing times more successfully than some others. Also in 72, Hitchcock Hitchcock put out his second to last film, Frenzy. And maybe to me, the most unique among the new Hollywood films of this time came Deliverance, directed by British filmmaker John Borman, who'd previously made the now much-loved Lee Marvin crime film, Point Blank, and the World War II two-hander, Hell in the Pacific, which starred also Lee Marvin and Japanese icon Toshiro Mifune. Hardly a new Hollywood pot-smoking neo-hippie who was hanging out in Malibu with Dennis Hopper, Borman was tapped by Warner Brothers to direct an adaptation of former poet laureate James Dickey's novel to be shot in Georgia, presumably because his experience as a director made the studio comfortable that he could handle the location shooting. Soon-to-be legendary cinematographer Vilmos Zygmunt shot the film. And I think it's his contributions that, to me, represent the biggest artistic contribution to the film. And the film changed Burt Reynolds' perception, his career trajectory, and really his life, even though he only really is central to the film's maybe first third or first half. It's a different kind of 70s movie. Deliverance became a canvas upon which interested parties could and still do project their areas of interest. Is it an anti-Vietnam film? Is it a film about toxic masculinity? Is it a snobbish put-down of white Southern culture? Is it a snobbish put-down of entitled elites? In our discussion today, my friend and recurring guest, Ted Jessup, will no doubt entertain and enrapture us with his takes and encyclopedic knowledge of the film and its times. And Ted, welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. It's so great to be back. Thanks so much for having me. And especially for this amazing, great film I've loved since I was 13 and completely traumatized by it. <laughs> okay, we'll get to the we'll get to the traumatizing aspects, which I think we we know well what they are. What's unique to you? It's it's a it's a different movie to me. In in a you know, I do a lot of new Hollywood films on the podcast, and I was kind of struck watching it again last night that this is different than other new Hollywood films. In some ways, it's kind of old school in its river adventure. But the themes that are kind of present in especially the book, which I'm also rereading now for the first time, which is amazing. I'm, I'm sure you've probably read the book many times too, but it's a different kind of 70s movie, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. It's, you know, it has elements of a Western in that it's man against kind of nature and his own nature. Um, and there's stunning photography of a kind of untouched wilderness but you mentioned toxic masculinity. I think one of the major themes of the movie that is about the way men act with men, like a constant kind of competition for supremacy. Um, and then placing in a context of 
sort of civilized man versus primitive man or, you know, soft city folk who don't realize how far they've come from their sort of primal origins. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they want an outdoorsy experience and to get back to nature and they don't realize how far they've traveled. So, yeah, the only other movie that I think is sort of similar. I mean, it's got a straw dogs quality, Mm -hmm. you know, scary locals (laughs) kind of um, uh, traumatize you know, fancified intellectual kind of arty city fo- folks. But yeah, I think it's really unique in this combination of things that it's sort of self-reflective about male roles. Mm. Um, and we'll get into that in a way psychologically that a lot of Westerns never are. Yeah, I think it's um, uh, combines this with an incredible dark suspense and pacing mm. that makes it an adventure movie, a sort of psychological thriller, a movie with a kind of deeply disturbing kind of, uh, you know, central event. Yeah, the movie kind of flips on itself impressively, I think, a few times over the running time. You know, I, I had a, I forgot in watching the film. When I think of the film, of course, you think of the scene, which we can just refer to as the scene because it, largely overshadows the rest of the movie. And we can talk a bit about whether that's fortunate or unfortunate, but I also think about Burt Reynolds first, then kind of watching it last night, I was reminded, you know, Burt's only really actively in the film really for the first third. I mean, after he breaks his leg, his character is kind of sidelined. And then it's John Voight who really takes over the film, who up until that point had been a kind of benign Voidian presence somewhat in the background to uh, Lewis Medlock's alpha of the of the quartet. Interesting, you mentioned Straw Dogs because I think uh, James Dickey, who wrote the the book and and uh, on which the movie was based, he I think he initially wanted Sam Peckinpah to direct this film, probably because he'd seen Straw Dogs, which I think came out in seventy one. So maybe that was on his radar for that. But I think the way it's shot is so sort of interesting and unique because it's not this beautifully saturated, natural wonderland vista type cinematography. I think he talks in an article that I sent you about how they kind of really bled out a lot of the colors and it has this kind of almost mash-like limited palette of greens and browns and earth tones and even the clothing that the guys are wearing and their skin tone and the way he photographed the hills and the river and all of that stuff. It doesn't it's not a vibrant, wondrous, natural vista. It's, as you said, a little bit more ominously photographed. And uh, that provides a lot of the underpinning for me of the sinister stuff that that happens. Yeah. I mean, apparently they showed up. It was too beautiful uh, <laughs> to be menacing. So they did a lot of sort of play with kind of saturating and desaturating the colors. Mm-hmm. And they shot a lot of day for night stuff because uh, they didn't want it to look like, you know, on Golden Pond or something like that, where you're overwhelmed by the kind of majestic beauty. But at the same time, you know, it's uh, it's the river they shot on is one of the most dangerous in, in the South. And, uh, you know, they couldn't avoid it being kind of, um, you know, stunning mm-hmm. and intimidating and scary. But yeah, they were able to tweak the sort of psychological and emotional overtone by playing down the sort of sparkly colors. Yeah, what you mentioned with Burt Reynolds, I mean, 
he he's uh, sort of out of commission mm-hmm. for the second part of the movie, but he's already established a lot of the really major mm-hmm. themes. Yes. Um, you know, he's he's the skilled outdoorsman. He's the true alpha male. The others are different versions of beta males. John Voight being sort of the closest to him, who kind of admires him and wants to be a little more macho. Mm-hmm. Ned Beatty is sort of a tubby jokester and class clown. And um, Ronnie Cox, uh, Drew, is this sort of, um, you know, musical, bookish, you know, um, uh, you know, more educated, mm-hmm. delicate, genteel character. And from the outset, Burt Reynolds is posturing, you know, mm-hmm. it, the movie opens, you know, first on black and then in distance shots of of construction on the river and then in, you know, aerial shots of the car and stuff. And he's waxing on about, you know, <laughs> nature and man and how, you know, it's being lost. And, you know, he casually throws out the term rape a lot. You know, they're raping the land. They're, mm. they're you know, stealing the power to give it to the suburbs. This is the last chance we'll have. You know, then you see him and he's for the for that period of time, he's super jacked. He's got this really unique kind of leather sleeveless wetsuit top (laughs) that's like a modern sort of Marvel character thing. Uh, He kind of is aggressive and squares off with the local hillbillies in a way the others are sort of intimidated by, Mm -hmm. you know, baits them and doesn't shy away. You know, it's all about these little contests for um, showing who's got supremacy, like a bunch of, you know, wild sled dogs or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it continues with his sort of, you know, macho bow hunting and, you know, he kills a fish and, uh, you know, he kind of mocks the weaker ones. Right at the outset, he's sort of defined all these themes about, you know, we're facing primitive man, we're facing primitive. Um, so his presence is, is it's, it is a really interesting point. His presence is felt, but sort of what he's taught the others they're left to use to fend for themselves because he has, you know, what looks like a kind of um, giant mound of raw chicken coming out of his leg. <laughs> yeah, you know, this the screenplay does such a good job. I'm I'm always interested in the podcast on I frequently cite Kubrick's sort of sentiment that the best films come from adapting longer form novels because whether it's the shining or uh you know, 2001, which he had Arthur C. Clarke actually write a novel so that he could adapt it for the screen. His belief was always that books contain such subtlety and and depth that you can you can choose scenes from a book and depict them accurately in a film, and somehow they'll be infused with the filmmaker's awareness of what was going on over 240 pages as opposed to one page on a screenplay, and as I'm reading the book now, uh, it's 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 amazing how well cast the film was uh, with these four protagonists, and it's almost more fascinating for exactly what you said, which is the way the th- other three guys are betas is so fascinatingly delineated in their characters. And in the book, it goes into much greater detail about each character and sort of, you know, the John Voight character has this 
advertising business that he's sort of jaded with and not moved by. But he also is really aware that he's also not an artist. He's not a photographer of any renown or an artist or a drawer of any renown. You know, he's already sort of intimidated by the the potential dangers of the trip. He suggests when they're trying to rent cars from the sort of scary Griner brothers, uh, you know, why don't we go back to Atlanta and like watch the game? <laughs> You know, he says, I got a wife, I got a kid, mm-hmm. I'm happy with my life, I got a good job, the system's done well by me. Yeah. And uh, Lewis says, why do you come on these trips with me, man? You know? Mm-hmm. And he's like, you're making me feel like my bourgeois life is lame. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, well, you think it's lame and you want a taste of this. So, yes, he's a different kind of beta character who aspires to be um, more dominant. And, of course, he emerges as you know, mm-hmm. after the trauma and then facing the kind of perils of the river, uh, sort of steps up um, and manages to, uh, you know, pull a Lewis, you know. The other two are not going to be that, you know. Drew is mired in the sort of ethics of mm-hmm. kind of, you know, what the right thing to do is, and he eventually sort of psychologically melts down and pitches <laughs> into the water. Um, or a and Ned Beatty is sort of strengthened somewhat, but is clearly kind of traumatized. Um, You know, it's also about trauma. It's also about you try to do these things to test yourself and you run into the danger of uh, fucking yourself up really badly. Yeah. One of the fascinating psychological things that's portrayed in the film is even though Ned Beatty's character is sort of the softest kind of jokingest character in a way, he's also the truth teller who wants to go home earliest and would be right to have done so it turns out. Uh, but he's kind of mocked even by the other guys for expressing that sentiment. And he's also, he, he's also expressing what the viewers mounting sort of reservations are, you know? Yeah. First, you see this kind of just end of the line kind of gas station area that's covered with rusted vehicles. And in the window is a sort of mutant child and an ancient woman. And then they have the really charming scene with um, Billy Redden. Yeah. uh, The sort of very sort of inbred looking uh, Mm -hmm. uh, banjo player who, of course, didn't really play the banjo. (laughs) But um you know, you're getting all these signs that this is a fucked up place where they shouldn't be. This isn't just hiking in the White Mountains or something. This is delving deep into a place that other people live and you don't understand them. Uh, and uh, they're going to be dangerous. And you're absolutely right about the the casting. I mean, um, Cox and Beatty had just been theater actors. Uh, so their freshness and naivety, I think you'd see that. You read that, and Boyd was the sort of biggest star. Uh, I mean, he'd done Midnight Cowboy, I guess. And Burt Reynolds was a was a TV guy. You know, he'd been in a mm-hmm. bunch of TV shows, and I don't know if he'd made a movie before, but he was a B actor yeah. in every sense of the word. You know, it's a it's a real case of you know his ta- talent is always debated. I I think he was a really good actor when he wanted to be, yes, um, or when he was called on, but. Uh, sheer charisma, sheer star power, you know, mm-hmm. even though he's being a sort of posturing asshole, he's really compelling. I mean, you want to be on his side. You want Lewis to like you, you know, even if you don't want to be in his canoe. And when they talk about people like Beatty or Nicholson or Redford or even Donald Southern and Lee Marvin, they talked about, 
none of them would have done that. None of them mm. could have been that kind of um, just macho top virile I mean, masculinity. Yeah. Okay. You couldn't even imagine any of those guys in the costume. Um, <laughs> no, you couldn't. Let's let's talk a little bit about alternative casting. The, as you mentioned, original director was uh, James Dickey wanted Sam Peckinpah, who would have done an interesting take on this. Maybe the violence would have been more overt than it even is in the film. And Dickey also wanted Gene Hackman to play Ed, who's the John Voight character. Not bad. Not bad. I could I could definitely see that. And Borman wanted Lee Marvin, who he had directed in two previous films. So probably for the comfort level, uh, Lee Marvin does not exude Ed Gentry to me. Uh, that would have been strange casting. Originally, Borman, I think, sold the studio on the idea of getting Marlon Brando and Jack Nicholson for Brando playing Lewis Medlock and Nicholson playing the role of Ed. But then the studio said, no, we want to do this much, much cheaper. We don't want to pay those prices. So I, I'm not sure Brando, you know, somebody at the studio was thinking of 1959 yeah. Brando instead of 1972 Brando. Yeah. 1972 Brando, <laughs> little, little aged out of the Lewis Medlock part. Um, also Donald Sutherland and Charles Charlton Heston apparently turned down the role of Lewis, which is, those are both strange. Uh, Sutherland as strange, Lewis Medlock. And I think, you know, for all the kind of, star power of Heston and all the great things like, you know, yeah. like Planet of the Apes. He would have cheesed it up in yeah. a way. Get your hands off me, you just... damn dirty hillbilly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, other actors were Redford, Henry Fonda, George C. Scott, and Warren Beatty considered uh, at the time. But, you know, the, the cast they ended up with is so perfect. That first scene, which which rivals maybe the Ned Beatty scene for cultural you know primacy i mean people know that dueling banjo scene all over the world even if they don't really know the film and that scene is so brilliantly constructed edited photographed and the little interplays that you mentioned between the old man who comes out uh, at the gas station for example ned Beatty tries to interact with the guy by saying hey man i really dig the way you wear that hat and the old gas station guy kind of takes his hat off and looks at it you don't know nothing. And he says, you don't know nothing, do you? And then Ned Beatty, it's this awkward moment. He doesn't have the ability to interact with these people at all. He is such he is at such a remove from them that he's not uh, capable of building any bridge to them. Whereas- He's just condescending and completely condescending, clueless. Yeah. I mean, he's just the most out of his depth in yes. that world. I mean, the others are sort of um, frightened, but Ned Beatty is compensating by being, you know, he does that whole bit about, you know, all my youth and glory is yes. lost in that car. You know, yes. he's trying to be a jokey. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a defensive strategy because he's kind of getting increasingly terrified. Then he tries to, it's again, it's a male on male encounter where Ned Beatty tries to establish a kind of, I'm superior to you to a, mm -hmm. an old sort of skinny yeah. uh, mountain man. And the guy just says, you know, basically, Go fuck yourself. And yeah. Beatty kind of is cowed and walks away. And, you know, um, for, for all that's made about the movie supposedly talking down to, you know, white Southerners or depicting them as these violent, reprobate, mountain-type hillbillies, you know, you could also watch the film and say that, for example, that guy running the gas station 
retains his dignity and sense of self, whereas Ned Beatty's character loses his in his attempt to joke with the guy. One of the overriding themes is that civilized man is destroying these people. Right. They're the underdogs. They're going to be flooded out. And the Tennessee Valley Authority or whoever's doing it is not going to bring them power and new housing. (laughs) They're siphoning power to suburbs of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So I think they view these country people Yes, is different. Mm-hmm. And there are some of the ugly results of grinding poverty. Uh, there's sympathy there. There, You know, yeah. I think uh, Ned Beatty comes off as the asshole. Right. I don't think they're meant to represent the entire thing. Also, the environment is beautiful. These people come from a place that's stunning compared to sort of, you know, Buckhead, mm-hmm. uh, Georgia. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the Ronnie Cox character, who's kind of the do-gooder, he's he's kind of your liberal do-gooder folk music enthusiast exactly. who brings his Martin guitar along, but not as good one. The book is pains to point out. Um, <laughs> he, he attempts to bond through music with the Billy Redden character. And the scene is is shot and is infused with an actual coming together of these disparate parties because during the dueling banjo scene, the old guy is doing a folk dance. He's getting into the music. The John Voight character kind of drops his fear and is is standing in amazement and wonder at this musical bond that's going on. And the Ronnie Cox character is so enamored of this, the vibe of playing, like they're getting off playing together in a way that only music can connect people. And even the Billy Redding character, who is otherwise completely, uh, you, you cannot tell what he's thinking or feeling, is smiling and enjoying and jamming on the music. And then when it's over, it has this amazing moment where he tries to bond further and say, oh, man, I could play with this guy all day. But then it's shut off, which is a really interesting choice because I just read that scene in the book. And in the book, they play it one or two beats further of connection in the book. The Ronnie Cox character goes to the old man and is exchanging information. He's writing down their address and uh-huh. the kid's name. And, and he's going to That's right. he's going to send him something. And then the old man is clapping Ronnie on the shoulder. And there's there is a bond created that the book does. But I think it's so right in the movie. And this is the this is such a fascinating way that books can be different from movies. The choice that Borman makes in the film to to truncate that connection so abruptly because we want that connection to continue too. It's been fun for us to experience after the kind of the tension building. You know, movies are more economical. Mm -hmm. And at this moment, they need to remind us after this kind of beautiful harmonious scene that they aren't in harmony, that this was like, uh, you know, a brief distraction, but it is a moment where, you know, um, the mountain people and the city folk are, you know, yeah, the, the old man is clogging a sort of wall-eyed guy comes in from another direction. And I always notice that he looks right at camera, but he <laughs> says, you know, who's picking the banjo and yeah. it's, you know, they're not at odds at all. Uh, Ned Beatty's clapping out of time. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, they must've been shot later, but Burt Reynolds has just a whole variety of sort of thoughtful, pensive, (laughs) enjoying uh, sort of expressions. But yeah, they snap us back into reality. Remember where you are. These are fish out of water. And I guess everybody's heard the story about how, you know, they wanted him to turn away from Ronnie Cox. And he kind of liked Ronnie Cox and couldn't really do it. 
So they brought Ned Beatty over mm. um, and he hated Ned Beatty for some reason. You're talking about Billy Redden? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. And so he was able to do the scene of just like, fuck you. And then Ned Beatty, you know, does another boorish thing and says, you know, give him a couple of bucks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I believe you could too. I believe you could. That's good. It's very good too. God damn, you play a mean banjo. Hey, you, you want to play another one? Give him a couple of bucks. <laughs> oh, that is so good. It's so perfectly pitched. And uh, I think Borman told Lynn Stallmaster, who's the casting director, this would go a little bit against my, my defense of the movie's you know, perhaps ham-handed treatment of hillbilly folk, but he did tell Lynn Stallmaster, I believe, go into town and get me every every diseased, imperfect person you can find because he wanted people, you know, I think James in James Dickey's book, um, he goes into much more detail about having spent time in the rural South. And the book is from, is from, the, is, is from the John Voight character, the Ed Gentry character's POV. And in the book, that character talks about having spent time in parts of Georgia, rural Georgia, and noticing that many, many country people, many farmers are missing limbs, digits, farm accidents. People have maimed scars, you know, violent, there's a violence to a rural impoverished existence. That's kind of, and, and an inability to get medical treatment, an inability to get medical treatment. Yes. Um, you don't get your eye put back in or your teeth knocked out kind of, um, on one level, he knew he was making kind of a horror movie, but he ends up being even handed, I think about rurality and urbanism. Yeah. But yeah, I think, you know, for this, the scene that's coming up, I think he knew you needed mm. monsters You for atmosphere. You needed people that looked like they were uh, warts and all, low, low class, economically kind of people. So before we get to that scene, you have this the scene where the guys do find their way to the river uh, and again are made to be the butt of the joke because Burt Reynolds is overconfidently driving too fast down some roads, which he assumes are going to lead to the river. And the brothers in the pickup truck, which also a nice little ominous touch I noticed in the film, the two brothers that they've paid, the Griner brothers who are going to who are going to drive their cars down to Aintree as they go down the river, just as the, the pickup truck takes out from the uh, tow lot. A third guy jumps into the pickup truck with a shotgun, the gun. and that's such a nice little touch of ominous. Now that guy isn't the guy who's going to be toting the shotgun in the woods, but it's such a great little, it's such a great little filmic tell that I didn't notice. Uh, yeah, before. I I remember replaying that scene over and over because I was like, oh my god, is that the guy with yeah. the shotgun, the toothless guy? Because that would, but but that's too simple. It's like too you simple, know, they're yeah. cracking them from the beginning. I think the idea is that menace mm -hmm. is all along the river, is yeah. all around once you leave the comfort of home. So it's not like there's a conspiracy to get these guys. It's that yeah. they're out of their depth and there might be barracudas here and sharks here and more eels here. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of them is going to get you. And then they have a great scene where they are on the river and then uh, the Billy Redden banjo character is up on a bridge 
you know, a very Joe, a very Bobby Joe McAllister type bridge. And Ronnie Cox's character, again, seeking connection is waving and is kind of like, hey, remember me? And there's no recognition. And Billy Redden is just like, I don't even remember who you are. And he's just swinging the banjo in such a distinctive way, metronomically. It's it's a really interesting shot. It's a really interesting and I think pointed shot that sort of, again, sets up this perfect kind of entry point to really the end of the first third of the film, which is which is getting to the scene. So let's let's talk about the scene. By the way, just to mention, that is a an ode to Billy Joe Trestle. Oh, is, is that, uh, is that might have been interesting to have Robbie Benson play the Billy Redden <laughs> character. Is, is that an, is, do you think that's an intentional uh, Billy Joe McAllister call out in the bridge? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think those things are ubiquitous. Yeah. It was a third of June, another sleepy, dusty Delta day. I was out chopping cotton and my brother was baling hay. And at dinner time we stopped and walked back to the house to eat. And mama hollered at the back door, y'all remember to wipe your feet. And then she said, I got some news this morning from Choctaw Ridge. Today, Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. Okay, so obviously, I think what everybody remembers this movie for is the scene, the rape scene of the Ned Beatty character by uh, one of the two backwoods shotgun toting hillbillies who come upon the John Voight Ned Beatty canoe. Uh, the Burt Reynolds canoe is a little bit farther down the river, so they've pulled over and they are standing in the woods when two two guys emerge from the woods, one, one holding a shotgun. And very rapidly, everything changes in their lives and in the film. And all of a sudden you're into this kind of horrific horror torture moment where John Voight's character is strapped to a tree with his own belt and the Ned Beatty character is stripped down and made to basically wallow in the muck and the leaves and is put over a log. And it's a very difficult still to watch, very graphic male rape scene that takes place. And I was wondering as I was watching it last night, you could do a lot of things with this scene and the way it's uh, portrayed in the book is very faithful to the way it's portrayed in the movie. So it's not like they made a different choice in the film than Dickie made in the book. But in the book, it's, you know, it's a book, so it doesn't kind of have that that visceral in-your-face nature that putting it on a huge screen does. Uh, and Ned Beatty is so perfectly, uncomfortably, convincingly cast and is, and is portraying what's happening to him so well that it's very difficult to watch still. I wonder, though, do you think the movie needs that to go there to make this point? Or... Does that overshadow the film? Like, for example, when David... You mean Fincher, that they take it to rape? Yeah. Like, for example, when David Fincher was making Seven, he told the crew and the cast members before they even shot the film, look, I'm doing a lot of things in this movie. There's a lot of art involved in the movie, but you all need to be really clear right now. This is going to be known as the head in the box movie when this comes out. Because I have a scene that's ending the film. That's all anyone is going to ever talk about when they talk about Seven. And it's the head in the box movie. This became the squeal like a pig movie. 
And I wonder if that does a disservice to the other more interesting things that are going on in the film by overshadowing it, because how could it not? That had never really been put on camera that way. Yeah, before. I don't think that's a problem. I mean, I think that is the central horror moment of the movie. I think that it colors. I think you have to go that far. I think it's, you know, it's an amazing thing to do for the time period because, you know, it's about men. It's about men's competition and men's posturing. Um, and what's the worst place that can go ever? What's the biggest thing every man fears about going to prison? What's the worst thing you can do? And the amazing thing is there have probably been a million um, on-screen rapes of women yeah. in movies. <laughs> and, and this one stands um, out. <laughs> They make the point that, like, you know, men bandy about the word rape and and Mm. this brings it home, like what Mm. this means. You Mm -hmm. know, Ned Beatty experiences the kind of potential sort of shame and ridicule. He's humiliated. He's traumatized. You know, the others. I mean, this has a kind of meaning, I think, for. Uh, the nature of violence of people Mm. against each other and cruelty. It's also important to note that like it's progressive. You know, I've talked about these sort of posturing moments. They come to the shore and I don't think it's clear that these guys want to rape these guys. I think it evolves. Like Mm. first they're kind of pushing him around, trying to establish like what Ned Beatty will take, what he'll put up with. Mm. Same with John Voight. You know, he touches his nipples, he touches his face. Uh, and, you know, when they start to fear for their lives, they start being compliant. Mm. You know, they go into the woods. I mean, you know, uh, in hindsight, you would, um, you know, die avoiding going into the woods, mm-hmm. you know, fighting your way to the to the river and just yeah. swimming away. But they still think as city folk, they're going to be able to charm or talk their way out of this. You know, a really important moment is when they say, um, hey, look, you know, um, if you guys have a moonshine yeah. spill up here. That's um, what sets it off. We won't say anything. And they're like, what? Boy, you are lost, ain't you? Well, hell, I, I guess this river comes out somewhere, don't it? That's where we're going. Somewhere. Look, we, we don't want any trouble here. If you, you gentlemen have a still near here, hell, that's fine with us. Well, sure. We never tell anybody where it is. <laughs> you know something? You're right. We're lost. We don't know where in hell we are. A still? Right, yeah, you making some whiskey up here. We'll buy some from you. We could use it, couldn't we? Well, you know what the hell you're talking about? Oh, we don't well, know look, what I... you're talking about. No, Honestly, no, no. We you don't. said something about making whiskey, right? Ain't that what you said? Didn't All I know we, 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 we don't know what uh, you're doing, and we don't care. That's none of our business. That's right. It's none of your goddamn business. Right. Well, we've got a uh, quite a long journey ahead of us, gentlemen. Well, this is... Hurry! You ain't Jeez. going no damn hurry. Yeah. Like, what are you saying about us? You know, reinforcing some cliche that they're sort of criminals, you know, that gives them permission, Mm -hmm. you know, to kind of uh, go full on. And it turns into a totally different kind of assault. Yeah. Um, You know, they think they want money. You know, they want to establish dominance Mm -hmm. in the scene and they don't like these people in their neck of the woods. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, that's something that's ringing in your head the entire time. You know, even when it turns into a man against river thing, you hate and are afraid of the monster on the kind of, you know, cliffs uh, above them because, you know, they've been involved in something truly heinous. 
I don't think it would work the same if they just beat the shit out of him or cut off his finger. This is something that has deep, terrifying, horrific nightmare meaning. It's the worst thing you can do to another person besides kill them. And for men who have not nearly the experience Mm. of women, you know, walking the earth Mm -hmm. in a kind of fear for this kind of thing, I think it makes it kind of even more potent and powerful and a kind of evolved movie for that reason. You know, it's interesting in the book, there's a scene not not long after this scene where uh, the Ed Gentry character is contemplating uh, the Ned Beatty character after the rape. And his character acknowledges to himself that he feels a revulsion towards the character. And, he, and Dickie uses the phrase, what he allowed to happen to himself. Right. Blaming the victim. It's a really, yeah, it's a really kind of for its time, I think, interesting and truthful thing that Dickie puts in the book of how ostensibly this guy's friend views him differently after this thing that has occurred to him. Now, I should say, I don't know how familiar you are with the book, but. I haven't read it in 25 years, but I remember it. There is. I remember there's also a feeling where he feels guilty that. He feels glad that it didn't happen to <laughs> he him. Does, yes. Yeah, because it's about to happen to him just as Lewis uh, emerges and puts an arrow through the guy's chest. But the book, I have to say, Ted, there is a lot of homoeroticism in the book. Uh, oh, yeah. And I wonder what, I don't know what James Dickey's personal story was, but the way that the Ed Gentry character looks at and admires the Lewis character and his the musculature, I mean, it's described like a hothouse potboiler novel at, at times. And I'm wondering if he put that through there sort of intentionally to show kind of the, you know, it's kind of that late 60s decadent ennui and maybe anything is possible. People are sort of so lost in in suburban comfort that their minds are going to weird and interesting places. And I think in the book, you can see that happening a lot in the Ed Gentry character who... who yeah, no, that's very true. He wants, a part of him wants to be Lewis. Yes. And, you know, I think Dickie set out to to do a story about male relationships and how fucked up they are and that they would be suffused with a kind of, you know, eroticism and a kind of, um, you know, unexamined kind of, uh, you know, desire and attraction. And I mean, you know, that informs, you know, a lot of the hostility too. Burt Reynolds puts them all in their place in various ways mm. in the first five minutes on the river, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and he never gives up. Remember that first night on the river where, you know, uh, almost anything camping. Ned Beatty says is contradicted, you know? Yeah. We beat it. We beat the river. You don't beat it. Yeah. Like, wow. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> you know? Um, he also says, come on, fat boy. Yeah. Come on, fat boy. <laughs> it's like kind of, you know, yells at him the whole time yeah. and, you see that is, uh, you know, Ed is trying to be him, but, you know, he gets like the yips when he when he tries to use the bow on a deer, you know, mm-hmm. he's evolving as a character. And then you just have a dark side of male competition and posturing, mm-hmm. you know, when you get Bill McKinney, you know, the terrifying so rapist. Good. Yeah. I thought was a local for a long time till you know, I read much later, you know, oh, he's he? like a... Uh, a sort of Stella Adler train. Oh, no. Is that true? Yeah. And he oh, was I in a lot was... of, you know, he was in a bunch of Clint Eastwood movies. And the other one, Herbert Coward or Cowboy Coward, whatever he was called, he was a sort of friend of Burt Reynolds because they'd worked in a kind oh, of, okay. you know, adventure town. 
uh, in Georgia, <laughs> right. you know, Maggie Valley or something like that. <laughs> and he recommended him. Um, and, you know, he'd actually lost his teeth in a weird prop gun mishap. And, you know, he was much more of the real deal. But McKinney really holds his own. And they all talk about how, you know, he when they kill him, like he was able to be still and hold his breath for like three and a half minutes. <laughs> Borman was like, it was fucking unbelievable. Yeah. Like he prepared for this because we hauled him around and moved him and we shot him you know, from eight angles, like, you know, propped up on those branches. Mm -hmm. And he was just like, you know, completely into having, uh, being dead. You know, and Um, as as amazing as the, as the Ned Beatty scene is, it's the scene that happens right after it, where the four guys now have to decide what they're going to do is almost to me, the most amazing scene in the movie, because this is, this is what the movie, this is the thesis of the film. Something terrible has happened because of a combination of our own hubris and dangerous environment, which we believed we could tame. Now now we've been forced to take the ultimate action, which, and also this is where Burt Reynolds is a movie star. Uh, when he walks up to the body after he's put the arrow center mass shot, as he says proudly, there's a just flicker of a smile over Lewis's face as he admires his work there. and. He loves it. This is what he has trained for. And then this- it makes you wonder if he hasn't done, if he hasn't <laughs> killed somebody before. I mean, it's like, like it's there's the ultimate, no horror. No, it's not at all. Like, let me shove this arrow a little deeper to make sure he's dead. And it's a glee. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, I did it. Wow. Like now, now I am true apex predator. No one, no one will ever be able to take this away from me. That's kind of what the Lewis Medlock character is experiencing. Well, and you see that he walks the walk. Yes. He doesn't just talk the talk. This guy will fucking, you know, and you're also, he's the hero. Yep. He saves he the scene, you know, who knows what would happen afterwards. They might have had their throats yeah. cut. And you're, because of the horror, again, yeah. of what's been done to Ned Beatty, you're like, good. You're now complicit as a viewer. You you want yeah, them to very be- few people are like, oh, my God, he just killed that guy. <laughs> um, most people are like, oh, my God, he totally fucking deserves it. Yeah. Now kill the other guy. Yeah, um, and, and then the discussion between the four of them of what they're going to do. You know, as I said, this to me is the thesis point of the film. Which because the the do gooder Ronnie Cox character is like, of course we have to go inform the authorities right now. And then the Lewis character is a little bit more. Well, hold on a second here. Let's think about where we are. Let's th- let's play this out. These guys are probably related to everybody in this county. And if we go to jury trial here for murder. Who's going to be sitting on the jury? It's not like they're going to get, you know, 12 swells from the next town. It's going to be this guy's cousin, brother, mother, what have you. And I don't I'm not willing to stake my life uh, being judged by a jury of his peers. And slowly, you know, each of them has these these counter arguments and arguments. And fascinatingly, the Voight character is left kind of waving in the wind one way or another until he finally declares for Lewis. And the Ned Beatty character, of course, his answer is to come over and try and attack the dead body, which is a great sort of choice for his character. And he also, yeah, he he hears what Lewis is saying. There's going to be a trial. This is going to all come out. He doesn't want to um, know. You know, these guys, you know, he also makes the point, like, these guys aren't going to the police. Like, they're, they're <laughs> yeah. rapists. Like, right. they're, you know, and, they're not going to say his, what exactly happened. His primary um, concern is that he doesn't want people to know what happened to him. To your point, I guess that's why you also do have to have the scene go where it goes, because he's ashamed. He's embarrassed. 
even though he's not at fault. Um, but he, yeah, he doesn't want this to come out because of the inevitable right. sort of, um, you know, revulsion and blame of the victim for the jokes um, at the country club. Yeah. I'd love to see like what you described as the swells of entry. Um, <laughs> Maybe the there aren't class. any in entry. There may there uh, may not be an upper class. Well, there's always a, there's always an upper class somewhere. Someone he's got to be king of the yeah. Roost. Or maybe the doctor, and uh, basically Lewis is saying we have left that world. You know, we've left that world. You're talking about charges and you know police and like that's not happening anymore here. And Ned Beatty basically says fuck this guy. Yeah. And John Voight, who's in a state of kind of agitated trauma just says, we're going with Lewis. Um, <laughs> and uh, so be it, you know, and, and Drew does get on board. He's, you know, he's a little hysterical, he's reluctant, but he digs and carries and mm-hmm. kind of pats the earth on the other guy. Although I don't think he ever really recovers no. uh, mentally um, from what he's been part of. I, I was th- I, I have a hard time figuring out where, which side I would 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 lie on if I was one of those other three characters. My my sort of uh, fear of the law side of me would say like, oh no, we do have to go to the police. I don't know what choice would you make if you were if you were Drew in that situation or if you were Ed. Where, which side do you lie on in the logic? I might make a fake argument for ethics and the law, and then go along. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, you know, I did. I I thought about it and I thought maybe we should. And then, you know, I was outvoted. You know, the other compelling sort of argument to do it is this is going to be under hundreds of feet of water. Yes. Like, you know, yes. sheer laziness of hauling well, the body back. In that, a canoe that kind of, that kind of just be like, you day. know what? We might want to just. Yeah. Leave him here. It's a pretty shallow grave. Is, is for Lewis's out trumpeted outdoor skills. Is a two foot grave really gonna? You know, I mean, like a fox could dig that up overnight. Uh, but okay. Um, yeah, maybe we're meant to think like it's a matter of days before a hundred billion tons of water is covering the whole thing. But then there's the whole floating thing. I mean, who knows? They, it seems like they should have pulled a a Drew burial with him, mm-hmm. just strapping some boulders to him. Yeah, or I was thinking, you know, cutting it up into small pieces and then discarding them over a wide array of territory might be a more effective way of disposing of the body. But, you know, what do I know? At least like, taking the air out of the lungs or something. Yeah, that, um, would, yeah, that would work. Uh, or, ch- yeah, chumming the pieces of the body <laughs> off the back of the boat to catch fish. And then there's a weird scene, you know, it, I, I was reminded how it always strikes me weird. So the scene where they're then getting back in the canoes and they're going down and then the Ronnie Cox character is really not, Drew is really not pleased with the choice that's been made and he's extremely agitated and he's almost kind of he's he's just not paddling and the Voight character is yelling at him you know come on drew come on paddle paddle and he's just kind of sitting there and then he just pitches over and falls out of the canoe and before lewis breaks his leg or even after he breaks his leg he's the one who tells us uh drew was shot drew was shot even though you don't hear a shot you don't see any kind of bullet impact or what have you now it was interesting because it's played in the movie a bit uncertainly whether Drew was actually shot or not. Although then when the Voight character scales up to the top of the cliff, the guy is up there, but he's with he's up there with a shotgun. He doesn't have a rifle, right? Or I guess Yeah, I've always believed that he wasn't shot, that he literally is in shock, can't deal. Hmm. I think the way they make him pitch in, it's not like a bullet impact kind of 
you know, he sort of stands up and flops. Mm -hmm. Then they inspect his body and there are no bullet holes. Um, well, they find something. I just that, think they, that's they meant find, to they, be a sort of. Ned you know, does see something. He just says, well, that, that could be an entry. It's hard to tell because the, the, the model. Yeah, it could be a rock. I think it's meant to just up the jeopardy that there's a guy on the mountain and they're being pursued because that's not a real thing yet. Like, you know, mm -hmm. that the other guy is stalking them. And so that, I think, just as an earlier way to make you realize there's unfinished business. Well, to be fair, though, let's be clear. We've buried the shotgun with the with the guy that the Burt Reynolds shot. The, yeah, the guy who ran away is the toothless guy. It's it's not the guy who rapes Ned Beatty's character. So the shotgun it's is the dropped. guy who's going to rape John Voight. The guy who's going to rape John Voight. Yes, the guy who's who has the he's missing the he doesn't have his teeth his top two teeth in in the scene, in the Ned Beatty scene. Uh, but then there's a scene at the top of the of the rocks when the John Voight character does finally kill him that he he removes the teeth and you see that it is the guy. So presumably, I guess the idea is that he went somewhere, got a rifle and either did or did not shoot Drew. Now, in the book, the Ed character sitting behind Drew, it's, it's very Kennedy assassination, actually, uh, the way it's written. He notices, and Dickie uses the phrase, a puff of, it's as if a puff of hair uh, flicked up a, a bit of his hair on the back of his head, and then he pitches forward. But he doesn't hear a shot because of the sound of the river or whatever. So I think it's almost like, um, uh, you know, it's like, is Harrison Ford an android in, in Blade Runner? I think it's intended to be a little bit undecided because that also adds to the jeopardy that these guys could be in. Because if nobody got shot, well, you know, that further implicates them in a crime that their entitlement and position really allows them to get away with, which is at the end of the film. So, right. If nobody got shot, they murdered two guys. And, you know, wait, yes. he did what? Exactly. Are you sure? Yeah. He just murdered two mountain men and uh, they didn't seem to do anything to you. Like, yeah. No, I think that that makes it like, oh, my God. Like, what if we're wrong about everything? Yeah. Uh, so that's interesting. It's an interesting choice. And uh, there it's intentionally ambiguous, more ambiguous in the film. Yeah. And then actually at the top of the, uh, the top of the rocks, when the Voight, after the character uh, is killed, Voight rolls him over. And his first reaction is no, because it doesn't look like the guy who didn't have the teeth. But then he goes and he manipulates the guy's teeth and it, it, it proves to be the guy. Yeah, he has a retainer. Or something. A retainer um, yeah, so. Just one thing I wanted to mention, I read a long time ago about um, Bill McKinney, you know, who played the rapist. Yes. Um, Bruce Dern, I think, was a friend of his from acting school. And he got advice from Dern to uh, intimidate Ned Beatty for the entire first part of the film until they shot the scene. So he just did a lot of like vicious staring at him and kind of stalking and bumping into him and stuff. So by the time of the scene, Ned Beatty's already like, who is this fucking guy? He hates me. I also read uh, that he brilliantly, so they were, they're doing multiple takes of, of the scene where he's going to utter the line, squeal like a pig. And I guess in uh, Christopher Dickey, who's James Dickey's son, who was a noted writer uh, of his own. Yeah. He, wrote, he wrote a very, he wrote a famous memoir about uh, this time with his father. He had a troubled relationship with James Dickey. He was a chronic, terrible alcoholic and violent. And 
Uh, but he wrote a really good book called Summer of Deliverance, and he talks in this book a lot about this scene. And uh, he says that I read that book; it's great. Uh, yeah, and so he says, I think it's I think it's Christopher Dick who says that McKinney was improvising a bunch of different lines for the squeal like a pig line, and as often happens on film sets, like it's this pretty freighted, heavy moment that they're filming. But of course you break up in inappropriate laughter sometimes because things just are both so perfect and so wrongly pitched yeah. over the cliff that one of his suggestions, I guess, before he said, I'm going to lay a big dick in that mouth. And everybody just, <laughs> everybody just <laughs> little on the nose. And they were like, yeah. And then I, I think in the DVD, they were aware that they needed the film to play on television eventually. So that's how they kind of ended up with something like squeal like a pig. That's a little bit something you could put on TV, even though it's extremely indicative of what's going on. So, even though actually he's got a pretty mouth and squeal like a pig are more horrifying, yeah, more horrifying and disturbing. And I'm going to lay a big dick in your mouth. And you could just imagine this crew. I mean, uh, filming this in the, in Georgia, you know, in the woods, you know, Vilmos Zygmunt doing all the, just bringing these lights and trying to make this work in, in sort of the most least filmically friendly location. Uh, I just think that's a hilarious anecdote of, of how it, uh, how it broke up the entire cast and crew. So then they, they hike up the, you know, the sort of yeah. climb up the mountain for Voight is one of the most conspicuous day for oh, night scenes it's ever. so We're terribly shot. <laughs> just like very, very oh sharp God. sun shadows. And yeah. you can read stuff that's 500 yards away <laughs> in the river. It's so day for night, horrible. It's like, that's the only shot in the film that really speaks to the low budget nature of what they were doing. Other than that, you know, you'd be forgiven for coming into it thinking you're going to watch, oh, this is a really arty 70s, new Hollywood film, but you know, it's really like a two and a half million dollar movie or whatever it was, like you said. Right. No. And that's also, you know, what everybody's talked about, you know, all these sort of relatively inexperienced actors doing their own stunts. Mm. I mean, you know, they're not serious canoe guys and you yeah. see these pretty wide shots where they're terrifiedly kind of, um, mm. you know, knifing into the water and they're scared and they're screaming at each other. Yeah, I mean, I, it says this in Wikipedia. This may be one of those apocryphal Hollywood things. It says that, I mean, this is a Warner Brothers film, so it's a major film studio. But in Wikipedia, it says the film is infamous for cutting costs by not ensuring the production and having the actors perform their own stunts. Now, they do perform most of their own stunts. Like John Voight did climb that insane cliff, and there wasn't really a lot of safety mechanism other than I think there were two uh, crew or stunt guys below him because the stunt coordinator said, well, if you fall, you know, you're not going to fall. You're going to slide. You're not going to fall. So you're going to slide. And then these two guys will break your fall with their bodies. So you don't, you know, pitch off the cliff and fall into the water where you would die. But I, I can't imagine that Warner Brothers would make a film production where they didn't ensure the production. Uh, it's funny that in the beginning, Reynolds has that weird sort of um, Another one of his sort of aggro speeches where, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, John Boyd says kind of uh, Bobby is very respected in his field of insurance. And, and uh, Burt Reynolds is like insurance. I never had insurance in my life. There's no risk. That's right. like what? Maybe maybe that is an answer to what was to what was going on. Who uh, are you, dude? And you can actually see in one of the shooting the rapid scenes, maybe it's the one where he where he does break his leg as the character breaks his leg, but 
he famously like bumped his coccyx on a rock and was like incapacitated for a few days. I think you can actually see the moment that it happens. Did you read the anecdote about the dummy falling over a waterfall? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. love that story. And he looked exactly like a dummy when he did that risky <laughs> thing. Burt, Re- you know, Burt Reynolds is a great, was a great Hollywood storyteller um, in that way where it's great to read about, but like if you were sitting next to him at, you know, uh, Chasen's or Vicks, it probably would get pretty damn old after an hour or two. But they, they had originally done this this rapids stunt with a dummy in the canoe and so they look at it afterwards and reynolds is like yeah, it looked like shit it looked like a dummy so i did it and he hits his he hits a rock and he cracks his hip bone and his coccyx and uh he gets stuck under the water and they had told him if you get stuck under it like swim to the bottom and it'll shoot you out and they couldn't find him and he's he goes like a mile down the river and as he describes it you know he's nude stumbling out of the water crawling lost his clothes, lost his pants, lost his underwear, his little black vest that you mentioned is gone. And he goes up to the director, John Borman said, how'd it look, John? And John says, like a dummy going over a waterfall. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I hope that happened. I don't know if it really did. Okay, then, as you said, a great ending and such an interesting ending. This is where I'm like, the movie is so cool and weird and interesting in its choices. The whole collection of scenes after they do get to Aintree, and just like Lewis said, uh, which is another interesting aspect of his character, right? He's the only one who believes that the brothers will get the cars where they say they're going to. Everyone else is like, well, they're not going to do that. What? Why would they just keep them? And he's like, they'll do it. Uh, indeed, the cars are there, uh, which is, I think, a bit of a tell that you know not everyone is as dangerous as these city boys perhaps thought, right? Then, right. Then you get that amazing scene that you talked about where Voight wakes up in the hospital and he goes down, uh, or I guess he's in a bed and breakfast or something, and he goes down and Ned Beatty is just like chowing down at the table with the locals. Uh, all well, first he's in the hospital and he's saying, oh my God, this is so good. And the nurse is like, what? And he's like, just like warm towels, chromium, kind of alcohol, <laughs> kind of being taken care of. Yes. Uh, then they return where they're given weirdly matching plaid shirts. Right. Um, and they're in, yeah, some sort of uh, old-fashioned version of a bed and breakfast, some rooming house. Yeah. Which seems to have a bunch of old people. and um, Perfectly cast. Perfectly cast. You know, John Voight just, it all kind of comes home to roost, and he melts down, he starts weeping. And to kind of break the tension, Ned Beatty's like, boy, that corn is special, isn't it? <laughs> And they all start chattering, kind of, I had a cucumber that was 12 and a half. Yeah, I've never seen a cucumber. <laughs> Another sort of sexual innuendo. True, that is true. Um, yes. Ned Betty doesn't want to hear about that. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's another thing where these are benign people. You know, the, the law is, like, understandably suspicious. Yeah. There are a lot of sort of loose ends and holes in their story. And then, of course, which everybody likes to mention, you know, the sheriff is James Dickey, mm-hmm. who sobered up for, uh, you know, there'd been a point in the movie where he got mad at Borman for changing some of his lines and broke his nose, and knocked out his teeth. And then they became friends again. But mm-hmm. Borman said at one point, James Dickey took him aside and said, I'm going to tell you something I've never told anybody <laughs> before. All this happened to me. <laughs> and Borman was like, what? Like, <laughs> 
And then just sort of began to doubt him when he saw him yeah. like try to get in and out of a canoe yeah. later. And he'd clearly never <laughs> been in a canoe before and he fell out. And it's like, what a fucking drunken lunatic. Yeah, I think he told, I think Dickie became famous for telling everybody that all this stuff really happened to him in the mountains. Uh, and, you know, he was a fabulist <laughs> and a fantasist. But uh, what do you think of his performance as a sheriff? Excellent. Fantastic. Yeah. It's amazing when non just writers or non-actors can... You know, he's a storyteller and a creator of characters and knows exactly what works and knows himself. He looked great. And he has like three scenes, you know, from, you know, trying to get the early information to mm -hmm. don't you never come back here. You know, when he knows like, yeah, you guys fucking did it. Yeah. And I can't get you on it. So just fuck off forever. Before you go, buddy. Let me ask you something. How come y'all really end up full of life jackets? Didn't we have an extra one? No. Drew wasn't wearing his. Well, how come he, he wasn't wearing it? I don't know. Don't ever do nothing like this again. Don't come back up here. You don't have to worry about that, Sheriff. I'd kind of like to see this town die peaceful. I hope Deputy Queen finds his brother-in-law. Oh, he'll come in drunk probably. Bobby. I don't think I'll see you for a while. It's the role that would be played by who's the who's the actor who's in like uh you know the uh maybe a, a Fred Thompson. Fred Thompson. It's it's a Fred Thompson role. Like but I think you're so right. It's so rare that the person can step into this role and actually pull it off because the sheriff is actually a really important role in the film and has to exude that uh, awareness that these guys are not telling the truth. He knows exactly that it didn't happen the way they're claiming. And he knows that the missing guy is missing because they done got him missing. Uh, and he's on to them all the way right to the end. And the amazing scene, talk about acting. So you have him leaning into John Voight's car with this final declaration, like, y'all getting ready to leave. You know, uh, I suggest you do that and don't come back or whatever he says. But the dead, the stare that John Voight goes is, is such a great look of, it has to be believable. This, this last look has to be believable as he 
professes one last time not to know what happened. I don't know. Yeah. And it's such a good scene because I just, you know, I always geek out on these lines that actors do where it's like, does Voight have to put into the back of his mind the duplicity that we read? Or is it because we know better that we read a duplicity? I never know the answer to that. Yeah, I don't know. I think he just knows what he's got to stick with. Mm -hmm. He knows the guy doesn't have anything on him. And uh, yeah, it's not sort of glee of rubbing it in his face. It's just, yeah, that's my story. (laughs) And James Dickey is, you know, to their credit and his credit in playing it, he's not a sleazy Mm -hmm. um, kind of Southern sheriff who's corrupt. He's not, you know, somebody who's going to put a civil rights worker in an earthen dam. Mm -hmm. He's he's a kind of serious cop and a real guy, but he knows there's some fucked up shit going on here. You know, they um, he's not trying to railroad them, but he's like, you know, I smell a rat. Yeah. And um, then you have the great scene when every when when uh, Ed is back home and then I'd forgotten this scene, you know, where the hand comes up out of the water, because, of course, everything is dependent now on the body remaining hidden. And you also realize, uh, you know, Ned Beatty foreshadows it earlier when um you know, he says on the river, like, oh, my God, it, it never ends. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the just the final thing. Like, when you do something like this, it doesn't go away. Right. It's never put to bed. They're going to think about this and worry about this shit. Maybe not Lewis, but, like, yeah. that's a possibility forever, you know, of, of body surfacing. I mean, it's obviously way before forensics or anything like that. But, mm-hmm. like, why not, you know? Yeah. And then they, they, interestingly, just at the, as the credits start, so the, the scene is played, you don't really know that Voight is dreaming when you see this hand emerge from the water that kind of bubbles and then a hand comes out of it. Then he wakes up and you realize it's just a dream. So you have a sort of sense of relief and then he kind of goes back to sleep. But then just as the credits start, it cuts back to the flat water and you do see a little bubbling, but you don't see the hand come up, but then the screen goes black and the credits start coming. So it ends on this really kind of perfectly chosen, uncertain note, as you said, where it's not going away. They didn't really get away with anything. You, you get the sense that uh, probably of, of the remaining three guys, it's Ed Gentry is going to suffer the most because I think the Ned Beatty character seems like someone who'll just be able to drink it away or pretend it never happened. He has that gift, that glib gift where he may not be outwardly tortured, but Ed Gentry, as we've come to know him, is going to be tortured by this. Yeah. I mean, he's got more sort of sort of moral depth. He's the only one that we've seen has sort of a lot to lose. He's a family man. Oh, another interesting choice. uh, Yeah. And then they have that famous shot that's sort of redone in Carrie. There was a big influence on um, what's his name? De Palma. Um, Uh, Which one? Which shot? uh, It's like Carrie's hand coming out of the grave. Oh, yeah. Um, I guess you're right. Yeah. He always said that was the kind of huge influence Mm. that he wanted to kind of recreate. And, you know, another interesting thing in the book, the Lewis character in the book is married and has three children, but it is another great choice to have him be portrayed in the, in the, in the movie as they don't even, they don't even get into it. Like he doesn't say that he's, I don't think they say that he's single or they even met, but they certainly don't mention that he's got a wife and three kids. No. Uh, And they actually have a conversation where he sort of 
um, you know, is giving Boyd shit for uh, mm-hmm. for being a sort of, you know, boring suburban family man. Yeah, so, so they probably true. couldn't have him say, yeah, I have a kind of macho family that yeah. sort of lets me do this shit <laughs> whenever I want. I think he's meant to be a sort of singleton, yeah. lone wolf, badass, not going to be tied down. I mean, I think those are more readable broad strokes for a movie. And it, it is weird in retrospect. It's not weird when you put the film in context to realize that, you know, Burt Reynolds was basically a TV guy and a bit player in B Westerns before this. And yet this stardom that was being captured would be the moment that transformed him into a superstar. Um, it's I guess to their credit that they didn't try to like rejigger things on the fly to make the Lewis character the hero all the way through, um, which maybe you can imagine. No, he's flawed. He's damaged. Um, But I think he's aware, like, this is my shot. This could be huge. Um, You mean as an actor? And then once he proves that, he goes into Cannonball Run Land until he emerges (laughs) in Boogie Nights 35 years later. Which Which he didn't want to do. He's definitely uh, our weirdest big movie star, don't you think? Like, he's yeah. he's just so oddly consumed by his own ego, yet also could be really great. So you can't just dismiss him as like a hollow, nothing creature of stardom that just happened, right? Like, and people love to see him. He was the highest paid yeah. actor in like <laughs> 1976 or something like that. Uh, you do hear the laugh, like the famous Burt Reynolds laugh in Deliverance a couple times. Yeah. I, I wonder, I didn't read anything about, Did I don't think they really knew that they were, that this was going to be as electrifying as it was for his career, because I can't remember. I bet they thought they'd settled, you yeah, know, until absolutely. they started looking sure at dailies. Did. I'm sure they did. And you know what? I bet you because this was shot in Georgia remotely, uh, if they've been doing this on the back lot at Warner Brothers and like, you know, executives could have seen the Reynolds dailies, I guarantee you they would have fucked with the movie and sent Dickie back to the drawing board and be like, you, you can't take Lewis out of the film halfway through. He's got to be the hero here. Keep him through right. the end. Like, it's, it's actually cool that they didn't do that, I think. Very cool that they didn't make Ed have the sort of <laughs> compound fracture. So I, I just loved it. I loved rewatching this movie. It had much more depth and interesting character interplay than I think I remembered and that I gave it credit for. That's why I asked the question about was it overshadowed by the scene, which everyone will always talk about forever. But I think you made a really good, compelling argument for why it has to be the way it is and a really good point uh, about you know the thousands and millions of, of rapes of women that have been put in TV shows and movies for years and years and years. And uh, gee, where that's not the thing about that movie at all. Yeah, that's not, so, you know, even, I think even a movie about that. It's not this. That's not the scene like in uh, the Jodie Foster movie. That's not even what people talk about when they talk about them. They talk about how amazing she is in the movie and all this other stuff. So it is a double standard kind of moment. Yeah. Well, it's great. Uh, it's a great American film. And, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, people push to limits. And then, you know, four great actors that will watch in, in you know, a mm-hmm. hundred great movies in the next 30 years. Yeah, you're right. Uh, in their infancy, you know, mm-hmm. all these guys are about the same age. They're all about 30 right at the beginning. And they're going to pop up everywhere, you know, and I can't really see maybe Sutherland could have been OK as somebody. He could have done the Drew character, maybe. Yeah. It's red meat when I'm hungry. <laughs> Whiskey when I'm dry. 
I mean, such a sort of folky, serious, uh, kind so of humorless. Yeah. The broken guitar is sort of the final horrifying image, you know, just the uh, right <laughs> that you've seen before, you know, so neatly, <laughs> neatly wrapped in, in plastic. plastic. <laughs> <laughs> Not as good, Martin, mind you. It's a secondary one that he found at a secondhand store. Uh, reread. Uh, the he book. makes that point when he's interviewed. He, no, he, no, he he talks about it in um, in the book. It goes into much more detail. He, there's a whole scene where they're talking about what they're going to bring, and Drew characters like I I, I, I kind of like to bring my Martin. And uh, one of the other characters is like, are you sure? And he's like, oh, don't worry. It's not my number one. It's one oh, I, got in a, I got it in a pawn shop. It used to belong to so-and-so. Uh, so it's it's just some of that little detail that I think they were able to put into the film based on the uh, the, the the book. The book is is so interesting. James Dickey has such a weird turns of phrase and you know, a former poet laureate of the United States. So it's not surprising, but he has a really interesting way of describing things uh, uniquely weird phrases. Uh, it's, it's, it's really worth reading again. Cause it's, it's a, it's, it's a much more, you know, novelistic exploration of the events of the movie. Yeah, no, he was, a, he was the real deal, a monster, but <laughs> a really eloquent, clear headed storyteller of sort of human nature and the dark side and stuff like that. And then Doolin Banjos became a huge hit won Grammys and was a gold record and stuff like that. And was part of a kind of revival of kind of bluegrass, you know, that began with Bonnie and Clyde, but yeah, um, yeah it's a really fun movie. And thank you very much for. Oh, thank you, Ted. Always a pleasure to talk to you about a film. We got to think about what we'll do next. Uh, I know you're going to say coming home yet again. So maybe <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you heard, but I talked about you on my uh, podcast about three Vietnam films that I did where I said, I'm not including coming home because it's not kind of the same thing as these others, but I know Ted Jessup will say, you got to do coming home. And um, I still have to get into that. So maybe we'll do that next. Okay. Awesome. Thank right, you again, dude. Thank you, Ted. I always appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you taking the time. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Okay, bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.